Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the surge in street crime, especially against small business and retail stores, the broken windows, the graffiti, the shoplifting. Have you seen the video of the jewelry store robbery last weekend in Victoria? This is unreal. Middle of the day, guy goes into this busy store wielding a hammer, starts smashing some of the display cases, ripping off jewelry. I think this guy cased the joint for sure. He knew exactly where, which pieces he was trying to steal. Got Jeff Bray standing by to discuss. Have a listen here first to this report from Global News reporter Kylie Stanton. With a hammer in hand, he pushes his way past the staff and gets to work. This surveillance video capturing the robbery in progress at a downtown Victoria jewelry store. The store was full of people, um, and that's something that is, is more unusual to see someone just really walk in that aggressively. It happened just before 3.45 Saturday afternoon here at Francis Jewelers. And while staff declined to comment, it's clear they did their best to intervene. Using chairs to try and push the suspect away from the merchandise. This is wild here in the video because you see some of the staff members holding up a chair. One guy's got a chair like a lion tamer trying to push this guy back and try and stop him from stealing stuff. This guy knew where he was going there. The staff later said, official later said that a, a Rolex watch was taken in this smash and grab here. You don't think he knew what he was going for? Yeah, he'd probably case the joint for sure. No arrest in that case. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Jeff Bray, Executive Director, Downtown Victoria Business Association. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Jeff, thanks for coming on today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me, Mike. Jeff, what did you think of that robbery? You know, I mean, several things uh, go through your mind when you see something. The first is, you know, uh, just the, the trauma uh, that the staff and the other customers there, you know, had to experience with this brazen uh, robbery and really violent robbery. I mean, that's not something anybody should have to face when they're just going to work every day. Um, you know, fortunately, nobody was seriously hurt. But, you know, I can tell you that this will stick with those employees and with the owner for a long time and probably mean they're going to change the way they operate their business. They had an open door policy, which every business wants to have, and they're probably going to have to look at having a buzzer system, which is not exactly customer friendly, but you have to think about uh, your staff. Um, And it's unfortunately, you know, kind of the uh, example of what we've been seeing over the last five, six years of the kind of brazen nature of some of this activity. It's a small group of people uh, who feel that they're able to commit these types of uh, brazen, uh, violent crimes because there's no real repercussions. Yeah, We certainly know there's yeah. complexity with respect to mental health and addictions that drive some of this, but that explains it. It doesn't excuse it. And what we're calling on um, is the provincial government to stop, you know, talking about some of these things. They've made some great announcements. We need execution, and we need them now in order to protect customers, staff, and small business owners from this type of activity. It's no longer acceptable. It's not normal behavior. Uh, and it's time for the pendulum to swing back and support business owners and their staff. 
Yeah, I think you're right about why it's happening is because people, they feel they can get away with it with basically impunity. Nothing happens, right? There are no, there are no real serious consequences. And the, the staff in this store, they, some of them, it appears, they recognize the guy that he had been in there before trying some other similar stunt. So this is a guy who's been getting away with this stuff probably a few times in the past and nothing seems well, to happen. Go ahead. Well, exactly. And in fact, we've had, you know, uh, other situations in Victoria, unfortunately, where, uh, I mean, there's an example of a store where somebody came in and, and was very disruptive, locked themselves in a, in a fitting room. Um, police did come. Police uh, took the person into custody. Um, the police were still filling up the paperwork. Two hours later, that person was back locked in the same fitting room. And that's the frustration um, that businesses have. It's a small group of individuals. Right. Um, and what we need from the provincial government is, you know, get going on the repeat offender issue. They need to be remanded while they're waiting trial. The other side of it is we know for people with severe mental health and or addictions, um, the premier's talked about involuntary care. We all know that there are people tragically uh, that are not able to be supported with community-based services. We need to get on with it because the impact they're having, not just in downtown Vancouver, which has seen this for years, not just downtown Victoria, but Nanaimo, Prince George, Kelowna, Penticton, Quinnell, um, all across the province and indeed all across the country, the approaches that we've taken to community-based services for certain people has clearly been shown to be a failure. Right. It's time for government to take leadership and actually do what the public is all waiting right. for them to do. Let me ask you about the call for compensation for small businesses that suffer these type of losses. I mean, broken windows, graffiti, broken stuff in stores during these violent robberies, shoplifting. I'll play a clip here for you. Kevin Falcon, leader of the BC United, uh, saying that the government uh, should help these businesses with grants. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. Kevin Falcon. I think this government has a moral obligation to say, you know what? We're going to provide some dollars for the BIA to deal with the broken glass, the vandalism, the graffiti, and all of the other uh, problems that are going on in the downtowns, and give them a hand. The government was in large part responsible for creating this mess. They ought to provide some dollars to help small business get through it. Okay, talking about giving some money to BIAs or business improvement associations. Jeff Bray, your thoughts? Well, you know, I'm on the board of uh, BIABC, and, and that's something that we've called for the provincial government. There are cities... Uh, including Prince George, uh, Victoria, who've actually instituted similar programs uh, within their municipalities. And it's to recognize that when you're selling widgets and somebody smashes your front window, uh, it's a $1,000 deductible or it's $1,200 to fix that window. You need to sell an awful lot of widgets just to make up for that. When it's the third time in a year that it's happened, um, because the same person is out there being able to do whatever they want without with impunity, uh, because the policies aren't effective. We think that uh, in the short term, while we fix some of these other policy issues, the provincial government could support small and medium-sized businesses that do not have Why? deep pockets. Yeah, okay. These costs. okay, taxpayers don't have deep pockets either, though, right? Why should taxpayers pay for these business losses? I mean, isn't, you know, crime has always been around. Ever since the first store opened, there was probably the first shoplifter, or the first robber. So, I mean, this stuff happens. I understand it's bad, it's pretty bad right now, but why should taxpayers pay for it? Well, you know, when businesses close up because they've, uh, they can't keep going, uh, they're no longer collecting uh, PST, they're no longer paying payroll taxes, they're no longer paying property taxes. So the fact is, 
is business is one of the key generators of tax revenues for both the provincial and federal governments as well as municipalities. This is a small amount uh, in the overall scheme of things, but would make a big difference for a mom-and-pop shop who's uh, got another $1,000 bill How much the window. Okay, the small amount. How much is the amount? How much are you looking for well, here? You know, we, we certainly think that uh, you know a $6 million pool that would be spread throughout um, you know, main streets and downtowns throughout the province would make a huge difference, uh, again, for small and medium-sized businesses that do not have the deep pockets but are feeling the impacts of some of these policies that are provincial in nature. Okay, we're following it closely. Jeff Bray, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. People with type 2 diabetes are excited about the potential of once-weekly Ozempic. In a study with Ozempic, a majority of adults lowered their blood sugar and reached an A1C of less than 7 and maintained it. Oh, under 7? And you may lose weight. In the same one-year study, adults lost on average up to 12 pounds. Oh, up to 12 pounds? Okay, all right. That's just a little bit of just one of the TV commercials for the prescription drug Ozempic. And, of course, those commercials are everywhere you've got the jingle that sticks in your head there this drug one of the most popular in north america right now a lot of celebrities using it and why is that well because it was originally designed as a diabetes drug but doctors prescribing it as a weight loss drug and many americans seeking out the drug here in bc there's a shortage south of the border the government clamping down on that all right let's discuss now with my guest dr ali zentner dr zentner is an internal medicine diabetes and obesity specialist at revolution medical clinic in vancouver dr zentner thank you for coming on thanks for having me mike okay boy a lot of hype and interest in in this particular medication and the situation in british columbia let's start with some basics here what exactly is ozempic i've heard it described as a appetite suppressant but the way you're describing it that that doesn't sound strictly accurate right it's a bit of semantics so it's actually more a satiety enhancer and i think here's the biggest misconception about weight if i could in two seconds explain you know uh massive biology and physiology so you have five thousand genes that govern energy regulation in the body that flip on and off throughout our lifetimes you have 37 different hormones you know your gut your brain your fat and muscle tissue all talk to each other 24-7. People gain weight, not from a math equation. We all know people who can eat whatever they want and never gain weight. And yet the people who, you know, may carry weight, we always sort of say, oh, they must be lying. You know, and, and the reality of the situation is that's not true. And that's a whole other discussion on weight bias and, and misconceptions in society. But but obesity or adiposity or or energy dysregulation, if you will, results when the brain thinks it's starving and our biological imperative is to not die. So we store fat and we hunt food. And you can even hear that symptomatically in some people. If you've ever been on a diet, you lose a bit of weight, you stop losing, and then your cravings start to sort of rise. And that's starvation response. So this is essentially an inappropriate starvation response. Why? Well, it could be any number of reasons in any individual. It could be genetics, it could be body chemistry, it could be environmental factors, or most likely it's a bit of all of it. So it's this really okay. complicated biological experience. 
Okay, what kind of impact has this drug Ozempic had on your patients? So this drug's been available in Canada for the last two and a half years. So I I think this idea that this is a new experience is quite humorous to us. This class of medications has been available in Canada for 10 years. So this is not something new. And I would argue that the GLP-1 analogs or this class of drugs has essentially cracked the code in part on our understanding of energy dysregulation and weight. It's made us realize this wasn't a calories in, calories out, number one, um, on the sort of intellectual side. But on the practical side, one of the most potent diabetes medications we've had um, in terms of ease of administration, huge because it's once weekly, and 10 to 20% body weight loss in patients. And so it's no surprise that it's had this huge shift in terms of function. Um, To put it in context, remember when Prozac was first came on the market and it changed the way we looked at mental health and depression? This is where we are at in, in obesity and adiposity medicine. So we're literally now flipping the narrative around this. And, and I think a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the backlash is, is a society that, you know, had a lot of preconceived notions about things, not necessarily really good ones, getting really pissed off at the truth. Okay, that's very interesting. So when you talk about that weight loss, let's talk about that now, 10 to 20% weight loss. Obviously, wow, I mean, that's a lot. And I've heard, though, that you have to stay on the drug, right? Like, you have to be on this drug for the rest of your life, or does the weight come back if you stop taking the drug? Remember that what, you know, when we talk about adiposity or, um, you know, obesity, we're talking about a, a chronic disease. Now, I don't mean people are sick, but that the body is not performing an inherent function and it affects how a person moves through the world. And in this case, you know, if you go on a cholesterol pill, for example, and it lowers your cholesterol, you don't stop the cholesterol pill and, and you know, watch, hope that your body learns. If you, if you have rheumatoid arthritis and you take a medication, you don't stop the medication once your joints settle down and hope they learn. You know, the body, medications are not an education for the body. They're a compensation for what the body's not doing. And in this case, if your body's in an inappropriate starvation response, if you give it a hormone, it gets in the presence of food, you flip the narrative. And so you're tricking the brain into believing it's not starving. I I think the challenge here is, and I laugh because let's say you go back to dieting. Well, anytime you stop a diet, what happens? So whatever we do for treatment, unless we're talking about, you know, a urinary tract infection or uh, an acute pain episode, any other disease in medicine is chronic. Whatever we do for treatment, we do it long term. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the popularity of Ozempic, this kind of craze on social media and the Internet. Sure. You've got celebrities like Kim Kardashian and, and Elon Musk and people t- taking this. And there's a lot of hype and interest in it. Are you, and I take it, I understand, like, it, this seems to be working very well for a lot of your patients. Yeah. Are you concerned, yeah. though, are you concerned, though, that Ozempic, with all this hype and interest, could be sought out and taken by people who don't need it? Remember, I, I'm never a fan of anyone practicing medicine without a license. So that's one. I I think 
we have this long discussion about people taking something they, quote, don't need. And I think the more important discussion is who determines that need. And in my experience, that need is determined by a healthcare provider and a patient in a clinic office where someone who knows the patient and discusses it, discusses their issues, then decides an appropriate course of treatment action. The, the challenge with the internet is it lacks context. And it's why we're allowed to be super mean to each other. And, you know, it's, it's sort of the town square, but nobody has to actually uh, own up to their identity, if you will. And I think when you lack that context, you make these blink decisions about who needs it and who doesn't. There's always this hype around sort of supply, et cetera. And, you know, I, I've been getting calls about, well, don't you think we should be using it for people who need it? And my question is, well, what does that look like in, in the real world? I, I think what this whole argument brings about is the amount of weight bias that actually exists, no offense, Mike, but in the media um, and um, in news reporting, for example, uh, on the internet and in the world, and medicine itself is hugely weight biased as well. And I think this is shaking that weight bias tree and seeing who's willing to sort of fall out here. Okay. Uh, if we had a drug that was approved for both rheumatoid arthritis and then all of a sudden people with MS we're doing amazing on it and addressing it. I don't know that you and I would be having this same discussion. Right. So, so you think that using Ozempic as, as a weight loss drug is, is fine, that is, that's okay? Like if a patient presents to you with obesity, you, would pers- you could prescribe this drug as an obesity medicine. Is that correct? Right. Remember, the drug is semaglutide, and it is approved in Canada for both. It's just that, quite frankly, the, there's two issues that are impeding this. One... Um, Wegovi, which is the trade name for semaglutide for obesity, is not yet commercially available in Canada, um, and there's a supply issue there, and, and that has to do with supply chain issues and not overuse. And two, and this is a bigger issue, is that government support for funding for obesity medications in this country, but in this province specifically, has been appalling. Now, I'm delighted that the government is coming to the table here to discuss this because we know that treating obesity, um, and and again, I think part of our challenge with obesity is our diagnostic tool sucks. We do a height and a weight and that's it. And there's a lot to to get through in, in, and we're not going to do it in six minutes here. But, But I think the reality of the situation here is that when you're talking about access to treatment, in a socialized healthcare system where patients come to see me for free, but then it depends what insurance plan they have, if I can get them coverage, that's where the kicker is. And these are these nuances that, quite frankly, the internet is failing to capture. So to answer your question, I have a patient with obesity that needs treatment. I decide with them, we make a a treatment decision about what that's going to look like. And semaglutide is very often a part of that treatment. Okay, what about the side effects? Like I've read about, you know, some minor yeah. side effects like nausea and that kind of thing. But what about what about this ozempic face that we keep hearing about that it causes your and face the, to go saggy? I don't know if I can swear on your um, <laughs> okay. on your show, yeah. but it's um, it's definitely so. Here's the problem: like when you lose weight, yeah. I am a 52, 53 year old woman. Gravity works, right? When we lose weight, we lose it uniformly, and and quite frankly. Some people will lose weight in their face. And if they're, you know, in their 50s or 60s, um, 
and they notice that maybe their cheeks don't stay up the way they used to. Okay, last question for you. What what do you think about the situation in British Columbia here now with the, the government this week introducing a new regulation to stop online and mail order sales of Ozempic because Amazing. there's so many so, Americans trying to get it here. There's a shortage south of the border, so a lot of Americans seeking this drug here. Do you think this is the right thing to do to restrict it? I, I think I think it's not so much Ozempic, and that brings to light the fact that Cross-border shopping for drugs has been happening a lot, and that chain of command of how a doctor in Texas, for example, can keep a license in Nova Scotia, never practice in Nova Scotia for 20 years, and write 17,000 prescriptions for Texans in three months. That's the issue. It doesn't matter the drug he or she was writing. And and I'm delighted that this brought this to light. I, I will say Ozempic is not in short supply in British Columbia. There is absolutely enough to go around for British Columbians, number one. I think the solution here is one, I totally support what the government did in terms of mail order prescriptions. Um, and it speaks to the idea of, you know, you don't want someone practicing medicine without a license. We're not medical vending machines. All right. It's been great to talk to you today. It's a really interesting issue. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Let's go right to your phone calls on Ozempic. Carmen and Langley. Hi, Carmen. Go ahead. Hey. So I've been on um, Ozempic for many, many years now. Um, I'm diabetes 2. Um, I'm also on metformin. Um, I take it because my doctor says that I should take it. And um, my sugars seem to be good. And um, I have not lost any weight um, and I know lots of people that are on Ozempic and they have not lost weight. Um, I honestly, I, I think it's, uh, it's kind of a, a scam as far as the weight loss thing, but as far as mm. the sugar thing, it works. Okay. That's very interesting to hear. Thank you, Carmen. I'm glad it's working for your diabetes. That's interesting to hear about the weight loss though, for sure. Lawrence and Comox. Hi, Lawrence. Go ahead. Hey, yeah. I was a ultra marathoner and, and big time biker and diabetic, and I only heard about Exempic listening to your radio. Yeah. I went to the doctor and got it last week. Oh. Tried it on Monday. Weighed myself this morning. I've lost five pounds. Real that fast? Yeah, I lost five pounds. I I've been sitting at around two hundred and thirty-five to two forty for quite a few years. That's for the biking, rollerblading. I could never seem to lose the weight. Wow. And I took a Zenic, and I've already down five pounds. Is it like, why do you think that's working for you? Like, does it suppress your appetite, eating less? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I don't, because I like to snack a lot. Mm. Right. And, yeah. that, and it's taken away all my snacking, and I think that's where I've been gaining the weight, because I go home, and you sit down, you watch TV, and, you know, yeah. Uh, I need a bar, I need this, need that. With oh, this, yeah. I got no, I eat my meal, smaller meal, and uh, and I have nothing in between. Okay, Lawrence, thank you for sharing that. Well, this is why people are trying it. Rose on the Sunshine Coast. Rose, you got 30 seconds here, okay? I've taken it for years. It really helped to settle my type 2 diabetes. I've never lost any weight, but the only way people are really going to lose weight is because you got to pay attention to what you eat. Diabetes yeah. is not something that you can just ignore. 
we have issues with it, and you got to take it and be responsible. If somebody's taking Ozampic because they think they're going to lose weight, it's in their head. Because unless you stop your mouth, the scales don't <laughs> Right? Thank you. So, Thank you, Rose. All right, here we go now with BC's graduated licensing system for new drivers. Very familiar to most British Columbians. The system is allows drivers to ease their way into driving and getting used to behind the wheel. And we all know how it works here. First, you start with your learner's license, so you get your L then you move up to a novice license. That's the N sticker on the back of your vehicle. And then you get your full license after that. All right. Here's the question now. Is the system working well? Is it fair to new drivers? Let's discuss with my guest, Paul Doroshenko, traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Okay, so let's let's get right into it here. And let's talk N drivers, okay? So if you've got the N on the back of your vehicle, your novice driver, stage two, right, in the graduated system, you've got some concerns there, right? You think that maybe the system's not fair to those drivers? Tell me why. Well, I mean, the issue is we know that novice drivers, you know, and you're usually thinking of very young people, you know, the 18-year-olds um, who are just getting out are, uh, you know, a greater risk on the road. They're more likely to get into accidents. Sure. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. And, you know, you and I have discussed this before. You know, we were both young once and we were not as responsible as we were when we got a little bit older. Uh, and so for a long time, we didn't have the graduate licensing program, right? There was, there, we did, and it wasn't really, people didn't think it was very effective. And then it was created with the LN system uh, that we all know. And it was basically what the government had done was nothing, nothing, nothing for a long time. And then they introduced this system, and now they really come down on these young drivers like the hammer. So if you get your license, you've got your, your N, uh, you've been driving for uh, 14 months, and you get yourself a speeding ticket, um, if you pay that ticket, you're convicted of it, you get a letter from the superintendent of motor vehicles telling you they're going to suspend your driving privileges, they're going to prohibit you for three months. And notice of intent letter is what it's called. And you've got 21 days to write in from the date of the letter. You know, they might print the letter off on April 15th, drop it in the mail on April 21st, and you get it a few days after that. Now you're down to a week that you've got to write a letter to explain why it would be disproportionately harsh to you or that it's not necessary or that you've learned your lesson or what have you to try and get it reduced. You lose your license at that point, and then what happens at the end of that, you've got to pay, you know, you paid your ticket. At the end of that, you've got to pay a $250 license reinstatement fee. You've been prohibited from driving for three months. You lost your job, right? Because <laughs> so many young people have to drive in order to earn a living. For, for many people, that's the, the, the skill they've got. Um, and uh, you've got to pay a $250 license reinstatement fee. And then you start again. That two-year period starts anew. Oh, so the clock, the clock, the clock resets because you have to, you you only get your full license after two years driving with the N, correct? Two years driving without offenses or without a driving prohibition. Right, right. I mean, maybe a two demerit ticket is not going to trigger a driving prohibition. It might just trigger a a probation or a warning or something like that. But if you get a, if you get a $196 speeding ticket, you're going to get a driving prohibition. 
And that starts the two years again. And so, so many of these young people, and they're not always young. Like, you, you know, I'm talking to people sometime in their, in their 30s where they, just, you know, they, they, they feel like they're in this never-ending cycle of, of having to have their end. And then, of course, they get a ticket for not having their end. You know? <laughs> and you're facing a driving prohibition. And you're 18 months or 20 months before, you know, into your period where you can maybe get rid of your Class 7 and get a Class 5. And okay. it's it, it's pretty harsh. And we had some callers in a few weeks ago calling in about this. And it's just something that I don't think the public really knows about. Right. Is it possible that given the system, you know, you're supposed to be driving with that N sticker on your vehicle for two years before you can get the your full license? Is it possible with that system you're describing that in some cases the clock resets, you got to start your two-year period all over again? Have you ever heard any drivers who have been driving around with that end, end sticker for, I don't know, a lot longer than two years possibly? Oh, sure. There's the people who yeah. have been driving for three years with the end, and they just, they're so accustomed to it that they don't really think about it, and then yeah. they get a traffic ticket. Yeah. You know, they haven't had a traffic ticket in three years or four years. They, they don't drive... Uh, regularly they drive every week or so they're just accustomed to putting the n on they haven't got around to going and doing their class five license then they get a traffic ticket next thing you know they're prohibited from driving uh you know you get two traffic tickets you have really bad luck and you 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 screw up twice um and uh you know you drive without your n on for example and next thing you know you're in this cycle of driving prohibitions and and you're already you know been driving for four five six years uh, before you find yourself in this in this never-ending cycle that you can't get rid of your end. Okay, so you think that is unfair to these new drivers, correct? Well, I, I think they, they're, they, they're coming down too harsh, and if the public, mm. general public knew that this is the way that they were coming down on them in these circumstances, uh, you know, again, you're waiting 20 months, you're into your 20 months in, uh, and you get a ticket at that point, or you had a previous speeding ticket 20 months before you had a prohibition, you get a speed. You get a ticket this time for disobey traffic control device because you turned left at seven o five in the morning when it's prohibited between seven and nine, uh, and you get a two demerit ticket. And there you are again, lose your license again. This time it's four months oh. because it's the second time. And, yeah. and then after those four months, you pay another two hundred and fifty dollars to get your license back, and you start another two years before you can go get your class five. Oh, so the purgatory starts again there. So this could go on for a long time. Now, Paul, we're going to open the phone lines here in a sec, and I know we'll get I know we'll get a lot of calls on this. Now, what about someone who's listening right now, and I know there people are, who are saying, oh, boo-hoo, cry me a river here. We're talking about young, inexperienced drivers. These are the riskiest drivers, especially young guys. Get behind the wheel, no experience. These are the riskiest drivers. We should be tough on them. We should be have these very restrictive this very restrictive system when we're talking about new drivers who have got the most risk. Well, the thing is, it seems it's it's either one or the other in our system. We either barely regulate it, or when we come around to regulate it, we're just like over the top with a hammer. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, I think everybody recognizes the idea here is to get people through those first couple of years um, while they're learning how to drive uh, to gain those skills, so they're not at a risk on the road. You know, a young driver can't use a cell phone for GPS. You're not allowed to have a cell mm. If you're an end driver, you can't use a cell phone for GPS. Think of the young women driving home or, you know, having to navigate oh. somewhere. You can't use your phone for GPS. That's Even hands-free. Even hands-free, you can't use it. Hands-free. Even hands-free. Yeah. Uh, you're not allowed to use huh. it. 
So, you know, these are these are the restrictions on them are, are, are often ones that you wouldn't normally think that exist. Um, and uh, <laughs> when you get hit with a ticket like that uh, and you lose your license, um, you know, it okay. just seems disproportionately harsh. All right. Talking about B.C.'s graduated licensing system, is it unfair to new drivers? Right to your phone call, Steve and Kamloops. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, my son, when he was uh, had his end, got his uh, driver's license suspended and uh, for speeding, and uh, he wrote a letter with my assistance, and they reduced it by a month down to two. Uh, he didn't lose his job. He uh, got to experience riding a bicycle. He was a carpentry apprentice uh, in November, riding a bike to the site. We were living in Chilliwack at the time, and. Uh, he realized after that he finally got his driver's license back and the cost and everything. But he, as far as I know, changed his habits. Uh, I remember when we were young and had, you know, six people in a car and, uh, you know, it was just lucky that nothing horrific happened. But I just remember when they started bringing in the graduated licensing uh all the horrific crashes, a car full of kids into a pole or something. And yeah. uh, I don't I don't think it's a matter of just getting them to learn to drive. It's those couple years of your habits. Uh, you just start realizing, I don't want to drive that way. I'll lose my license or whatever it is. And, uh, and that, you know, feeling sorry for them. Uh, yeah, it's not, it's crappy, but uh, don't speed. Pay attention to what you're doing. Uh, okay. And, okay. And I, the only thing I probably agreed with the comments before was the GPS. You know, I think yeah. I'm on the fence on that. You should be watching what you're doing and plan your trip ahead. But anyway, okay. that's, Steve, my, that's my experience. Thank you, Steve, for sharing that. And it sounds like, Paul, it sounds like his son learned a valuable lesson there under this system. Your thoughts? Well, and that is the idea is to change the behavior, right? Uh, the only issue, the particular issue is the severity of the consequences uh, and how it can trap people in that in that system. Uh, you know, there's also the, the person who's got the uh, end license and they've had it for years and, uh, you know, they had one drink four hours earlier. Their blood alcohol concentration is completely in the legal range uh, for anybody else, but uh, they are pulled over, provide a sample, and provide a sample that's exceptionally low, just a couple of milligrams of alcohol, the police have to give them a 12-hour driving prohibition. Then the superintendent gives them a three-month driving prohibition because they got a 12-hour. Like, there's just so many examples of, of where the system is just too harsh. Uh, and, you know, in this, it, I'm glad it worked for this uh, young man, and, uh, you know, everybody's always happy to see when it works in that situation. Uh, but when you get trapped in it, that's the big yeah. problem. Let's go to Joe on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Joe. Go ahead. Listen, I got my license when I was 19. I'm 37 now. Every morning, I, I drive my son to daycare. I go to work. I do 260 kilometers going from Burnaby to Langley four times. Then I go pick my son up. I go home. That's not counting the driving I do in the evening, on the weekend. And the whole time I've been driving, I've never had so much as a speeding ticket or anything. And then I see these people on the highway, end or no end. There's just a massive lack of respect for the road. So I don't know if this if this program is fair, but I kind of get the feeling it's not working. It's You think it's not working because you're seeing a lot of dr- bad driving behavior. Yeah, is I that feel right? like yeah. the, the way that new drivers are educated, they're just, they're, there's not enough of a fear, like a respect yeah. of 
of the consequences of what happens when things go wrong on the road. And it happens all the time. I see so many wrecks every day, and most of them are completely avoidable. It's just it's crazy. Thank you, Joe. Paul, your thoughts? Well, we could have uh, 12 shows uh, about the bad driving that we see in B.C. You know, from my perspective, it's because we see so little enforcement that uh, mm. a lot of people persuade themselves that they can drive without any consequences. Uh, but it's not really an issue of end drivers, as your caller just says. It's it's everybody. You don't see an end usually on those people who are driving terribly. Uh, but the, mm. uh, the, you know, there's just, if you're in Alberta, you're going to get pulled over if you're speeding. Uh, if you're in BC, you can drive 15, 18 kilometers an hour over the speed limit, and you're never going to get a, a speeding ticket in most of BC. Oh. So it's just, there's so little enforcement. Well, there's just little enforcement. We just don't have the police officers out there. We don't put the okay. emphasis on traffic enforcement that we do in other jurisdictions in this country. Rob in Surrey. Hi, Rob. Go ahead. Yeah, definitely a lack of education. We teach our new drivers how to pass the test. We do not teach them how to drive. And they drive them around in circles where the test is going to be done, and away you go. And there's no, they don't, because the test doesn't involve on-ramps and off-ramps on the freeway, they're never taught that. They're, it's just stupid the way we teach our people to drive. And Thank I, you, Rob. Expect them, and expect them to be good drivers. Thank you, Rob. Let's keep taking calls here. Martin in Richmond. Hi, Martin. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, I, I disagree that the, the the existing system is too harsh. Um, right. I, I actually believe that in some cases we need to kind of expand what we're doing uh, with regard to these young drivers. Uh, the type of vehicles that they have access today, specifically the Teslas, allow them to have access to a vehicle with almost unlimited um, uh, torque. So basically they can do zero to 60 in like 2.5 seconds. Um, that type of power, you know, 20, 30 years ago was reserved for super exotic cars. I was watching a, a show uh, where they reviewed motorcycles and they said that new motorcycle drivers, riders should, you know, have a, like a 150 or a 75 or 150 CC bike so that they could get accustomed to the power of the bike before they went up to a 250 or a 500 or a 750 or a thousand. Well, yeah. th those types of restrictions don't exist right now with new drivers. So you could have a new driver at 17 years old get into a car that that acts like a Ferrari. Um, and unfortunately, oh. if you know, if I was that age, um, you know, if I was 17 and I had access to a Tesla in the 80s, um, might I have made some mistakes? Absolutely. You know, you say it's, a, it's so, in the middle of the night. It's a, yeah. Sorry, yeah. So you ahead. think so? You think there should be what like a horsepower restriction for a new driver? Well, there needs to be a conversation. The types of vehicles that, that exist now and will exist from this point forward with electrical vehicles and instant uh, uh, torque and, and horsepower, mm. it, it, it just, we're, we're basically putting rockets on, on the road. Okay, interesting. Let's squeeze in another one here. Doug in Surrey. Hi, Doug, go ahead. Hi, Mike. I listened or I watched it up at uh, 72 in King George where people are at the end of a line of people making a left turn lane or they're changing lanes. They don't seem to be aware of a blind spot. They don't give any uh, uh, indication they're going to change lanes. They just change. As for the crosswalks, if people come across at the end of a line and the pedestrian like me has a walk sign, they'll look you straight in the eye and it's like, I'm bigger than you because I'm driving a car. You wait for oh. me, even though I'm legal to walk. Uh, yeah, that is not cool. Thank you, Doug, for that. No, you've got the right of way there to crosswalk. Okay, I knew we would get a ton of calls on this, Paul. They're still coming in. we got 30 seconds here. Like, what do you think is the answer here? What do you think should be done? Well, I mean, I, I think there's a lack of enforcement, as I've mentioned. 
yeah. in BC. We have not, you know, and, and traffic enforcement officers will tell you, like, it's it's sort of the last thing that they, they do. Uh, your general duty officer, uh, it's hard to find the time uh, and okay. be assigned to do traffic enforcement. And we need to put, uh, you know, more emphasis on traffic enforcement in BC. Paul, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.